Hey, good morning, Gretna family. It's Pastor Rob. It's great to see you today. Hey, have you ever heard of a cheat code? Chances are if you play video games, if you ever have or you still do, chances are you know or at least have heard of what a cheat code is. According to the Computer Desktop Encyclopedia, and yes, it's apparently really a thing, a cheat code is a character combination that is entered to change the game's behavior. It could be a combination of keys on a keyboard, it could be a combination of moves on your controller, but it's designed to make the game behave in your favor. It's exactly like it sounds. It may make you invulnerable or give you an infinite number of lives. It may power up a weapon or give you access to a weapon that you weren't supposed to be able to access yet. It may help you see where your enemies are when you're not supposed to, or it may just help you cut right to the end where you just skip all the levels and you arrive at the final level of the game with all the power and ability and weaponry you would ever need to defeat the boss, and then off you go, right? It's designed to help you cheat, (laughs) to make things way easier than they are supposed to be. Cheat codes are often put there on purpose by developers of the game. It's a way they reward those who put in a ton of extra effort into trying to find them, which is really interesting because wouldn't it just be more productive and more fulfilling, I would think, to actually just beat the game than to put in all kinds of efforts looking for ways to skirt around the game. It's interesting, interesting statement about human humanity and how we think. Because the truth is, humanity's been searching for a cheat code, not just in games, but in for life, really since the very beginning. If we were to look at the Bible, we were to look at the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the serpent comes up and offers Eve a cheat code, right? A cheat code to being like God. If you just eat of this apple or this fruit, hey, you're there, right? You've got that goal. You're going to be like God. You're all the way to the final boss, the final level. In Genesis chapter 32, Jacob spends an entire night wrestling with God, trying to get God to give up his name without going into too much detail. There's power in a name, especially in the ancient Near Eastern way of looking the world. If you named things, you had power over it. And so Jacob was essentially looking for a cheat code. He was trying to wrestle God into telling him the secret so that he could have power over God. We see cheat codes outside the Bible. We see the mythology behind the fountain of youth. We we, we see if you look at documents in ancient Roman and Greek documents, thousands of years back, you can see people have been thinking about, dreaming about this way of cheating death, the fountain of youth, this way to never die, to always be young and vibrant. If you read any history, American history, you probably know that in the 1500s, Ponce de Leon was running around spending half of his life, all of his talent. People were thinking he's nuts, looking for this fountain of youth that would give him eternal life so he'd never have to worry. It also shows up in modern day. Every so often, with alarming regularity, we see a sports figure get busted, for lack of a better term, for using a performance-enhancing drug. They're trying to access a cheat code that will help them win, that will help them be better than the people that they're going up against and win. We also see people pursuing cheat codes in their finances. Get-rich-quick schemes have been around for 
ever for longer than human history is probably documented short of scripture but they it's been around for a long long time the idea of if you just make a certain investment in a certain super secret way right if you just use the cheat code you can get the riches all the riches you want with very minimal risk and very minimal effort and those things continue to exist today and the reason they continue to exist and the reason that Scammers continue to use these these cheat codes to promise you more than you could ever possibly gain is because they work. It's because at, at our core, it's human nature to want to find a cheat code, to believe that there is a cheat code to life, to make it easier, to get us where we want to go without putting in the effort to get there. We are in the third week of our series called Game Over. It's about time we started talking, we mentioned video games or something of that nature, right? Game Over, embracing a new life in Christ. The obstacle we've been talking about all the way along is the obstacle of sin, that thing that keeps us from embracing our new life in Christ, that keeps us from truly living as he would want us to live, from truly growing, becoming fully committed followers and disciples, and truthfully coming to know God. Sin keeps us from that. It is a roadblock. We spent the last couple of weeks kind of breaking down the challenges of sin. It's sin comes from within. It's not something that comes from, ex it's not external, it's something we carry with us. And that really sin is just that, that temptation that is brought to us by, by external forces, by Satan and his forces. And yes, I do think those are real. <laughs> by Satan and his forces that really tempt and bring out those sins and get us to lean into our basic instincts. And we make mistakes when we do because our basic instincts aren't always good. God's instincts are much better than ours. We talked about last week about how Paul struggles with his ego as an obstacle, recognizing that sometimes he wants to do certain things, but he ends up doing another. And at the, at the core of the problem is himself. It's his own pride, his own ego, his own unwillingness to see who he is. And the thing is, I, I think deep down inside, many of us, if not most of us, are hoping that we can look at those obstacles and see those difficulties and recognize that sin is a thing and hope there is a cheat code for resolving it in our lives, for letting go of sin, like there's some kind of secret sauce that, that will make it all work and make it all make sense and help us get to the final part of being a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ, a full disciple of Christ where we have all the peace, all the joy, all the love, all the patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, the fruits of the Spirit, to get to that place, we want to believe there's an, a quick and easy cheat code that will get us there. And the thing is, it may be the hardest part of this series, there isn't. There is not a cheat code that will just get us there. It requires work. Now I can hear a group of Christians right now saying, we're not saved by work, we're saved by grace through faith. And I'm gonna say, you bet your bippy that is 100% true. We are not saved by anything we could possibly do. But discipleship, make no mistake, discipleship is work. Following God is work. Getting rid of the obstacles and sin in our lives is work. 
Jesus made no mistake about it. When he describes the life of what it means to follow him, to be a Christian, he, t- it's, he lays out a pretty difficult path. It requires effort. It requires a willingness, as James said in our text last week, to deal with trials, or two weeks ago, to deal with trials and to recognize there are going to be challenges in life. To go back to Jesus, he says, look, you know, this may not always be easy for you. You may be persecuted for this by others. That's a challenging thing. You may have to leave behind all the things you knew before and not look back and look forward to me. He makes no mistake about it. It's not an easy gig. It requires tough choices and it requires a willingness to commit to do the work. So how do we do that? Well, no, God doesn't give us a cheat code for suddenly being godly, but he does show us the way. He shows us what the path needs to look like. And this week we're going to cover three things that I think we need to do if we really want to embrace the new life we have in Christ to set aside the sin that is the obstacle and to move toward him. To do that, we're going to look at three different scriptures. The first one is 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. It says this, it says, If we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say to ourselves, we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. It's a more common thing than we would care to admit. There's an evangelist and author, his name is Ray Comfort. He has a, a a website and a series of books and teaching series called The Way of the Master. It's about learning to follow Jesus and pursue God. Well, he also does some evangelism at Huntington, in Huntington Beach, California all the time. He goes out on the beach with his dog and he talks to people about Jesus. And when he engages them, he almost always asks them, for the first question he almost always asks them is, are you a good person? Right? And, and the answer is almost universally, yes. Yes, I'm a good person. And then he asks them to dig a little deeper and he says, well, have you ever lied? Yeah, I've lied. Have you ever stolen? And an alarming number of people say, yeah, at some point in my life, I have stolen. Have you ever looked at someone lustfully, right? Yeah. And he goes on and on basically through the Ten Commandments and and he he arrives at this assertion. He says, look, I'm not, I'm not judging you, but the word of God says this. The word of God says you are a lying, thieving, adulterer, adulterer at heart, right? Are you still a good person? Yeah, I'm still a good person. <laughs> That's an oversimplified view. I get that. But the truth is we have a high capacity for denying, deceiving ourselves into believing we are something we are not. To believing we are moving towards Jesus when we are not moving towards Jesus. To believe that we have put aside sin out of our lives when we really haven't. In fact, if we were going to continue to read this section of John, it's going to say in a second, stop calling God a liar. Right? When we deny that we have sin, basically God says otherwise. God says we are. We are broken. We are messed up. And the quicker we own it, 
the quicker we recognize that that's an issue and don't always assume the best, the faster we can move on. If you've ever been involved with a 12-step program, that's step one, right? To recovery from addiction, step one, admit you have a problem. We have to do the same thing with sin. We can't glance over it. We can't pretend like it's nothing, like it doesn't matter, like it won't change us. A.W. Tozer challenges us. He says, look, am I approaching this, this God? Am I, as I, I grow in my relationship, as I'm a Christian longer, am I becoming more in love with a God who draws me to holiness? Or am I becoming more in love with this being that says, ah, oh, sin doesn't matter so much? Sometimes I, I think we convince ourselves that sin doesn't matter so much and we become okay with it, frankly, because we feel like it's a cheat code. We feel like it helps us get where we want to go without having to actually be honest with ourselves about where we are. The second thing I want us to remember is to repent. No, seriously, repent. (laughs) Repentance is far more than simply saying, God, I'm sorry I did that. James chapter 4, verses 6 through 9 describes that in, I think, a really powerful way what it looks like. He talks about this. He says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Again, back to Paul and his challenges, right? Sometimes our pride and our ego get in the way. There's an error, a level, a high level of humility that is required for us to truly approach God. But then he says this. This is where he describes repentance. He says, therefore, submit to God. Follow God's will, not your own or not the path you were on. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Fight against it. Don't simply say, if it shows up, it's fine. Don't put yourself in a position where you're going to have to deal with sin, right? That's part of turning the other direction. Changing the other direction means not going down the path that got you in trouble in the first place. And it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is a picture of someone who has taken their problem seriously. They've not simply said, I'm going to be convicted because I heard a message or because I I read a certain line of scripture today and it left me thinking about what it means to be a follower of Christ. This is someone who has chosen to say, this is a serious deal and I need to change direction. I need to do something that is the polar opposite of what I've been doing. I need to chase God instead of chasing the other things. It's not a matter of keeping it at arm's length. It's not a matter of Uh, simply traveling the same path and saying, if I just focus, it won't happen. If I just focus, it won't happen. If I just, probably not. That's not what he's calling for here. He's calling for wholesale change, right? One of the things that I think we hear advice on often when it comes to to dealing with sin, it's it's to just do something else. If you have a um, desire to watch porn, do something else instead, right? Go play a board game. Go watch TV with your family. Go do something. I'm going to challenge that notion. I don't think it's just about doing something else. It's about doing something God wants you to do. 
That's what a true repentance looks like. That's the change of direction. That's the commitment to flee, to resist from the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You are moving a different direction. You are washing your hands of all of it, right? It says cleanse your hands in the scriptures. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, walk away from it. Do something that is godly in nature. Instead of simply saying, I'm not going to do this thing I know I shouldn't be doing. I'm not going to find just find another pastime or another hobby. I'm going to choose to use that time praying. I'm going to use that time serving. I'm going to use that time spreading the gospel. Can you imagine if each and every one of us who struggles with sin would use those times when we were at risk of sinning to turn around and spread the gospel, how often the gospel would be spoken <laughs> and how many people would hear about Jesus. I mean, just Think about that, right? That's huge. The final thing I want us to consider is this. Treasure God's guidance. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 119, one of the, in fact, the longest chapter in the Bible. But Psalm 119 verses 9 through 11 says, how can I keep this, his, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping your word. He asks a question and then he responds. By keeping your word. I have sought you with all my heart. Don't let me wander from your commands. I have treasured your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. There is no substitute for knowing what God wants of us to avoid the things that he doesn't want for us. What does it look like to value or treasure something? Right? If you are a video game player, we'll just keep stick with that analogy. If you're a video game player or a sports player of any sort, if you value that, if you want to do well, if you want to win, you put in the time, right? You put in the time, you put in the talent, you work your rump off to get it right. If it's in a video game, you try to understand the strategies of how the game works. Same for football, right? You put in the reps, you learn the skill sets you need to learn, you make, you develop muscle memory so that you can repeat and perform it the way you want to perform when it's time. If it's a relationship, treasuring a relationship means investing in it. If you treasure a relationship with your wife, then you invest in a relationship with your wife. You spend time together. You watch out for one another. You root for each other. These are the things you do with the things you value. If you value your job, you invest more in your job, right? And the truth is we only have so much bandwidth, right? We only have so much time, treasure, and talent that we can invest, that we can truly put value to. And so we have to be cognizant of putting value in the things that really matter. The psalmist here talks very specifically about something we should treasure, and that's God's guidance. That's treasuring God's word. He has told us very clearly that we are to pursue him. And the way we pursue him is by understanding him. We understand him through his word. It's a pretty simple set of steps, right? Trying to fully understand who our God is is a lifetime journey. It doesn't happen in a matter of seconds. But the truth is, we don't value his word all the time the way we should. In a, a, a couple of recent Barna Research Group surveys, 
if you don't know who Barna is, Barna is a, a group, a research company that basically periodically, actually regularly, uh, puts together studies, comprehensive studies about how Christianity is doing in America. Is it growing? Is it shrinking? What are we good at? What are we not doing well? How's it working? How do people perceive us? And, and so they spend a lot of time and energy <laughs> developing statistics. I saw a recent survey when they were talking about people who read their text, read scripture more than once a week, right? People who read scripture more than one time a week. In 2019, that number was about 54% of practicing Christians. People who claimed that they have an active spiritual life, an active connection with Christianity and with God, okay? And that's different from those who say they follow Jesus but don't have an active role, right? It's just something they grew up with, they know about it, they don't do much with it. These are people that claim to be active Christians who follow God. 54% in 2019 read the scriptures more than once a week. 54%, that's just a little over half. 2021, they did a similar study and they found something very, very interesting. They found that that number has dropped. Now, between 2019 and 2021, something really huge happened. Its name is COVID. And COVID was high stress, problematic, very difficult. I would think those would be the situations we would lean more into God. It also was a time in which many things in our lives were canceled. School events were canceled. Work events were canceled. Life got put on hold in so many levels. We had far less to do. And yet, as of early part of 2021, early part of this year when we're preaching this message, that number has dropped from 54% to 34% of people who read scripture more than once a week. And by the way, other studies notably by one by LifeWay Research, says that, that those numbers are even lower in the Midwest. They're higher out West than they are here in the place that we are. So what does that tell us? Well, I think a couple of things. One, we're, if we're only reading scripture once a week, is that something we really treasure? Do we really treasure God's guidance. As the psalmist says, by keeping your word, I have sought you with all of my heart. All of my heart. Does reading it once a week demonstrate that we value it with all of our heart? If we were, again, learning to play a sport or learning to be good at anything, would once a week get it done? Right? And we're talking about... <laughs> okay, no. No. Once a week would not get it done. But we think there's a cheat code sometimes with scripture, with knowing God's word. And frankly, sometimes we think that that cheat code is Sunday mornings. And I think that's the reason why those numbers dropped even more. Because also during that time, when we had more time on our hands, church was canceled. In so many places, gathering together didn't happen at nearly the rate. And so what that says to me is those who are connecting with scripture once a week, more than once a week, a huge percentage of those, at least one of those connections is at church.
or maybe most of those connections are at church gatherings on a Sunday morning during a church event. That really should worry us. And if you fall in that category, it should worry you. It should make you pause and say, am I really only connecting with scripture once a week? Because if I am, I really don't treasure it. I really don't value it. I see it as something that contributes to my life in some way, shape, or form, but do I really value God's guidance or do I just like the idea of God's guidance? The truth is the scripture is the primary way in which we learn to understand God, to know who he is and what he desires for us. There is no cheat code for treasuring God's words in our heart. It requires commitment. It requires focus and it requires investment because we invest in the things we value. So what do we do with that? How do we, how do we adapt to that, to, to engaging more and treasuring God's guidance? Well, I'm going to give you three ways, okay? The first is make space. Make space. Um, oftentimes, I, as much as anybody else, make the excuse, I don't have time. I don't have time to read scripture. I don't have time to study God's word. I don't have time to work through it with others. I don't have time. Well, the truth is 99% of us have time. If we would stop watching OSU games, we make time. If we stop watching Netflix or our favorite TV show, we made time. If we stop doing a hobby that takes up an extensive amount of our time, we could make time. If we dropped out of our bowling league, we could make time. The truth is, it's not about making time. Most often, it's about valuing something else more than we value God's guidance. We're choosing what to do with our time. You have to make space. The second thing I hear often when it comes to studying scripture and, and really relegating it to Sunday mornings is, I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to study scripture. And so I, I want to help you do that too. This week, just this week, I had a Bible study with a number of guys in our church, and we went through the first eight verses of the book of Mark. It took us about an hour and a half to go through the first eight verses of the book of Mark. And we really just asked three things of the text throughout, and it's something I suggest you ask of the text of the scripture every time you read it, okay? The three simple questions. What is God doing? What are his people doing? And you can that can go either direction. Sometimes his people are doing the right thing and sometimes they're doing the, the wrong thing and you can learn from both. And the third question is, what does it mean I should do? If we were to look at Psalm 119, the text from which we're getting this treasuring God's guidance, let's look at that and see what it says. Well, it says first, what is God doing here? Well, God is providing his word. Right? He's provided by, he says that you're keeping, I'm keeping your word. It says in verse nine, by keeping your word, I've sought with you with all my heart. Don't let me wander from you. I've treasured your word. God is providing the word. 
He's providing the tool that he needs to grow closer to God and the true tool that we need to grow closer to God. That is where God has shown up in this particular passage. For ask that next question, what are his people doing? Well, the psalmist is one, treasuring God's word, seeing value in it and treating it as though it is something of far greater value than really a whole lot else in their world. We also see that, the, that they are asking for God's help, right? He says in verse 10, I've sought you with all my heart. Don't let me wander from your commands. Please, God, help me to not wander. He's asking for God's help. We also see that he breaks down what it looks like to treasure God's word. And, and we don't see it in what we just read. We see it in the rest of the verses around it. And that's important because as you're reading God's word, it's important to not just limit ourselves to reading two, two verses and trying to figure out everything it says. Sometimes it is that clear. Sometimes it requires more context. If we were to move on in the Psalm, it says this uh, in verse 12, it says, Lord, may you be blessed. Teach me your statutes. Again, he's asking for help. With my lips, I proclaim all the judgments from your mouth. I rejoice in the way you reveal your decrees as much as in all riches, and I will meditate on your precepts and think about your ways. I will delight in your statues, and I will not forget your word. He says, proclaim the word. Rejoice in it. Meditate, think on it, delight in it, and do not forget it. He tells us in the text what his people are doing here, what he is doing to treasure God's word. And then the final question was, what does that mean I should do? What does that mean we should do? The picture I think I see here is of someone who is committed, who recognizes the value of of God's word for overcoming the obstacles of his life to keep his way pure, i.e. keep away from sin, grow closer to God, keep his paths straight. As he's moving towards God and embracing his new life, commitment is required. God doesn't produce casual Christians. That's not his goal. His goal is to produce people who are willing to follow him all the way, not just to the ends of the earth, but into eternity. You don't need a cheat code for that. We just need a willingness to follow him wherever he may go. And his word tells us exactly where he is going and where he wants us to go with him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and he be gracious to you. May he grant you favor and give you peace. God bless.